this next guy, he challenged me. He has an absolutely beautiful message today. He has an absolutely beautiful wife, and he has an absolutely beautiful family. And when I say family, he's got, they got a big family. It's not a basketball team. They, they can fill the football team. They might be working on defense and offense. We won't go there, though, right? Guys, it's an honor to introduce you all the way from Ele uh, Granite City, Illinois, Deacon Patrick O'Toole. Well, good morning. It's been a great morning so far. Uh, as uh, Patrick O'Toole, I was delighted to have Sean Patrick McCaffrey start our day off for us. I never met an Irishman that I didn't like to argue with. Uh, so it was good to have one up there telling us how it was. Um, you know, one of the things that he talked about um, was the, that suffering was kind of the kiss of Jesus. And, I, and I'm going to talk a little bit about suffering, about pain and suffering, and what it's all about in our lives, and what it's meant to, uh, to prepare us for. But he's correct. that Suffering is one of the greatest gifts we have uh, in this life, uh, if what we desire is to spend all of eternity with God. So, uh, so I enjoyed his talk. And then Father Andrew got up, and a few minutes, uh, probably... Ten minutes into his talk, my wife leaned over and said, he's brilliant. What she didn't say, but what I was thinking is, why are you speaking today if this is the kind of people they're bringing in? Um, but he really helped me out. I got to tell you, I thought he was brilliant as well because just last night uh, I led stations and, and I've been giving about a 30-minute reflection after stations all during Lent in our parish. And... Uh, I was talking about letting go of some of our idle distractions, uh, that that's what Lent is meant to help us do, but that sometimes we don't choose to let go of really the more significant things so that we would have more significant time to spend worried about the things that last for all of eternity. And I confessed that for the last four or five months, the primary thing on my mind has been the Kansas City Chiefs. I listen to every press conference. I watch every video that's made about them. I'm glued to every game. I'm always, I'm always glad that football season doesn't come during Lent, and God would, of course, challenge me to let go. Um, but, he, but, but what he told me that made me feel so good was the mystery of Patrick Mahomes. That is really what it's about. That is why I'm so glued to it, but it's why so many... The man does things you just can't imagine on the football field, and it's must-see TV because you don't know what the mystery is going to be revealed this week. Uh, so, so that made me feel better about my addiction uh, to the Kansas City Chiefs. You know, I watched... Um, the Super Bowl in the 1969 season with my father uh, at 10 years old, and our Kansas City Chiefs won. And I uh, lost my dad a couple of years ago, but 50 years later, he and I were able to watch the Kansas City Chiefs win uh, the second Super Bowl in the history of the franchise, and uh, those are cherished memories for my brothers and I and my dad. Um, but the, the most important thing he said was not about Patrick Mahomes. It was about the fact that the journey back to heaven, from here to eternity, is difficult. Is difficult. Now, we might all, at a certain level, understand that, but I don't know that we've experienced the difficulty that it really is about. But I fear, I pray, the time is coming soon for us. And then Father Scott, I love Father Scott. I've, I've heard Father Scott speak. Uh, uh, he's one of my favorite uh, people because just like Mark and myself, he's follically challenged. Uh, so, so we have that uh, in common. Um, but, but, you know, that great uh, idea of where have they hidden my Lord, um, you know, when we realize that 70% of Catholics do not believe in the real presence of Jesus Christ in the Eucharist anymore, we know that we are challenged. 
that we are living in challenging days, um, that it is one of the signs of the times in which we are living. And of course, that's the primary subject of my talk today. Well, there's a lot of reasons, um, but I think they're pointing us to a new age in the church that all of us are challenged to step up. And so let's, let's get started. Um, I stand before you this morning with great concern for the future of the church in America. While remaining a believer with great confidence in the future of the church in human history. What I have seen occur in our culture in my lifetime is a battle between the Christian vision of the world, the vision that you and I inherited, and the humanistic and materialistic <clears throat> vision of our world that has emerged and is quickly pushing Christianity to the side in America. America from its founding was formed and guided by Christian principles. But during our lifetimes, that has been rapidly changing. These changes have deep roots, and they have powerful forces driving them, and they are not likely to change anytime soon. In fact, they are likely to get much worse before they get better. Unfortunately, these anti-Christian forces have exercised great influence and damage within our families, within our schools, within our parishes, and within our nation. Our children are abandoning the faith in record numbers. Our schools no longer graduate serious believers in the gospel. Our parishes no longer raise up vocations from the congregation. Our influence in the decision-making in our government, has all but ceased to exist. Now, all of this is very discouraging to us as believers because it feels like the faith that we hold so dear is rapidly fading away. But this is nothing new. The church throughout the 2,000 years of its existence has regularly appeared to be the underdog in the visible world of politics, cultural relevance, and number of believers. Clearly, we are entering one of those time periods once again. But rather than be discouraged, we should be enlivened. Let's think about what God can do with just a small group of true believers. Christ has just ascended into heaven. He left his apostles with the task of making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What resources, what structure, what army of believers did they have to accomplish that task? Well, they had the 12 of them, and a few hundred disciples who had hung on. Remember, when Jesus said, you must eat my body and drink my blood, they left him in droves. When he was crucified and died, they gave up on the dream. There are only a few hundred people, at most, who are still holding on to this notion that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. They had very little money. They had no infrastructure, if you will. There were no schools. There were no churches. There was no 
gospel written down that we could share with the people. And the society's attitude toward them was one of ignorance and hostility. And yet, here we are, the largest religion on this planet. Well, I forgot to mention, they also had Jesus, who promised he would be with them to the end of the age. The point being, we have so much more than the first believers started with. And by the way, we still have Jesus. If we are honest, however, we must acknowledge that one of the primary driving forces for the growth of the church throughout the centuries has been the blood of the martyrs. The millions of men, over a hundred million or near a hundred million is the estimate, men, women, and children who have been martyred for the faith. There is no greater witness you can give to the truth of the gospel message than to lay down your life as a testament to the depth of your faith. I believe the church in the Western world is about to enter into a new age of martyrdom. And the number of believers will get much smaller before it grows again. It is clear to me that we are standing at a crossroads, a decisive moment in human history, in the history of the church on this planet. And I'm not alone in holding this belief. I'm not the one who thinks, oh, this is happening. I'm just the one who's saying, yeah, it's happening. St. Teresa of Calcutta said, night is falling. When a mother can kill her own baby, what is left of a civilization to save? Pope St. John Paul II stated it very clearly for us when he said, we are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has ever gone through. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church. The gospel of life and the gospel of death. And Francis Cardinal George, former Archbishop, Cardinal of Chicago, said that he believed he would die in his bed, which he did. That his successor would die in prison. And that his successor would die a martyr in the public square. Clearly, these prophets of God looked around at the times in which we are living and believed we are in the midst of one of history's greatest confrontations between good and evil, possibly the final confrontation. So let's talk briefly about the signs of the times that indicate this to be true so that we can prepare ourselves for the chastisement that is on the horizon. Ready ourselves for the martyrdom that may be required of us if we desire to remain true believers. In Matthew's Gospel, when talking about the impending destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Christ outlines seven signs that would indicate to the apostles that God's chastisement was nearing. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen? And what sign will there be of your coming at the end of the age? Now note, they're asking two questions. He's just foretold the destruction of the temple. They're asking, when will this happen? And then secondly, when will we know you're coming back? He'll answer the second question later 
Right now he addresses the first. Jesus said to them in reply, See that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. The rise of false prophets, of antichrists. You will hear of wars and reports of wars. See that you are not afraid, for these things must happen. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Political upheaval, wars and rumors of wars. There will be famine and earthquakes from place to place. All of these are the beginning of the labor pains. The third sign, severe natural disasters. Then they will hand you over to persecution and they will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. Persecution of the church. And then many will be led into sin. They will betray and hate one another. Abandonment of the faith. And because of this, there will be an increase in evil doing. The love of many will grow cold. Lowering of the norms and morality in the culture. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the world as a witness to all nations. And then the chastisement will come. The gospel will be proclaimed to the entire world. I'm not going to go through what happened in the first century to indicate all of these signs were fulfilled and the destruction of the temple occurred in 70 A.D. But what I do want to point out briefly before we go further to prepare ourselves for what is coming is to just state the obvious. The first sign, the rise of Antichrist. An Antichrist is simply a false prophet. He seduces the masses with lies. Now, I don't know who we might identify as an antichrist in our time, but I think we can clearly see the seduction of the masses through lies playing out before our eyes every day. The sad thing is the most powerful teacher of these lies is often given free reign in our life and in our homes. I often wonder to myself, if it is the Antichrist of which Scripture speaks. I call it the signal, the television signal, the radio signal, the internet signal, the iPhone signal. The signal slowly and relentlessly encourages us to accept the wisdom of our age. It convinces us that the path to fulfillment and happiness is through possessions and activities through self-gratifying sexuality, through following your own will, not through a meaningful relationship with God. The second sign, political upheaval, wars and rumors of war. You know, if we look at American history over the last 150 years and break it into 50-year increments, we see something very interesting. In that first 50 years, we had 45 years of peace. In that next 50 years, we had 35 years of peace. In the final 50 years, we had 20 years of peace. At the rate we're going, we may never know a time of peace again. The war in Ukraine and the alliance it has birth between Russia and China clearly has led to daily rumors of war. And I don't think we need to look any further back than the last election and its aftermath to realize that we are in a time of unprecedented political upheaval. So to say that we are in a time of political upheaval, wars, and rumors of war would clearly be an understatement. The third sign, severe natural disasters are man-made disasters. Hurricanes, forest fires, tornadoes, 
ice storms, drought, flooding, meteors, asteroids. Is it my imagination, or do these things seem to be happening at an alarming rate? The headline on the front page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch this past Sunday read, Floods more severe and more frequent. The fact is that documented natural disasters worldwide have grown from 50 occurrences per year in the 1950s to nearly 400 occurrences per year in our day. Now we can blame all that on carbon emissions and global warming if we want to, but God has told us that when these things are increasing, a time of chastisement is near. When speaking of wars and natural disasters, Christ, as we heard, described them as the beginning of the labor pains. From the increase in in an intensity of these natural disasters and the increase in the number of years that we are at war, it is clear that the labor pains, as Christ described them, are increasing in both frequency and intensity. And as any mother can tell you, when the labor pains increase in frequency and intensity, the big event is near. The fourth sign, persecution of the church. The church has been persecuted since its foundation. And the fact that, <clears throat> and in fact, there were more martyrs for the faith in the last century, in the 20th century, than there had been in the previous 19 centuries added together. When we think about how could Cardinal George's successor end up in jail? It is really not hard to imagine a scenario. How long will it be before a bishop is jailed for refusing to allow Catholic charities in his diocese to place adoptive children with gay couples? Or refusing to allow priests in his diocese to perform gay marriages? Or refusing to allow Catholic hospitals in his diocese to perform abortions? It is really that black and white. There are those in power who desire to subvert the religious freedom on which this nation was founded. Why? Because if the church can be silenced, they are free to enact any law or policy they desire, no matter how unjust or immoral it might be. Five years before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., Nero's persecution of the Christians began. A great abandonment of the Christian faith. It is no secret that our churches are emptying at an alarming rate. Simply look at the crowd we have here today. much smaller than the same crowd we would have spoken to in front of four years ago when Mark and I began speaking for Dr. Gregory. I believe that the use of contraception among my generation of Catholics in defiance of a clearly stated church teaching is the source of this great falling away that has occurred in this generation. We cannot, 90% of us, cannot defy a clearly stated teaching of the church and believe there will be no consequences for that choice. What are the consequences? 70% don't believe in that teaching clearly, but they don't believe in this teaching anymore either. When you begin to pick and choose which teachings you will believe, which teachings you will follow, it all begins to crumble. 
In St. Paul's second letter to Timothy, we read what we can expect as judgment nears. Understand this. There will be terrible times. People will be self-centered and lovers of money. Proud, boastful, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, without self-control. Conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sounds like St. Paul's describing the culture in which we live today. The sixth sign, a lowering of societal norms and morals. In modern day America, Christian morals are not only in peril, they're becoming irrelevant. Divorce has become all too common in our society. Over 60 million American children were put to death in the last 50 years through the evil of abortion. Homosexuality has been normalized and legalized. Addictions to drugs, alcohol, gambling, and pornography are at epidemic levels. Choices which were once unanimously considered immoral in our society, have become socially acceptable. This widespread conditioning is darkening our conscience, and we are finding it increasingly more difficult to distinguish between good and evil. We know God cautioned us when He said, Woe to those who call evil good. But that is exactly what we have done. Finally, the preaching of the gospel to the whole world. Thanks to St. Paul, the gospel was spread throughout the entire Roman world. And with our modern means of communication, it is clear the gospel has been preached throughout the entirety of this world. The signs that Christ foretold leading up to the judgment of Jerusalem were fulfilled and as I said, the city was devastated and the temple destroyed in 70 A.D. But what is just as clear is that the signs of impending judgment are clearly being fulfilled once again in modern-day America. I don't know how much clearer God can make it for us. Judgment is coming. And when it arrives, we will either receive the joy of eternal life in heaven or the pain of eternal damnation in hell. There are only two possibilities. And that brings us to what I would like to talk about for the remainder of my time. The last things. Death, judgment, heaven, hell, purgatory. Because I believe that the courage necessary for us to face martyrdom only comes from the assurance of what awaits us on the other side. That depth of faith in salvation and resurrection into a new heaven and a new earth is what empowered the martyrs throughout history. They went to their death singing hymns because they knew what waited on the other side. Are we confident that we, in this room, let alone the, faith, the faithful at large, are that confident? Willing to give their life knowing the joy awaits in the next instant? I mean, that's the beauty of martyrdom, isn't it? It's a golden ticket. It erases all that I've done. Giving your life for another, giving your life for the faith is the greatest love you can show according to Jesus. Be sure that we can trust Jesus. When he tells us in Matthew's gospel that one day all the nations will be assembled before him and he will separate them into two groups, to those on his right he will say, come you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
but to those on his left, he will say, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Which is to say that we can be sure we are going to face judgment, each and every one of us on this planet. Believers and non-believers are all created in the image and likeness of God, and they are His people. In fact, for most of us sitting here, we will face our own judgment in just a couple of short decades. The most important question then is not when will Jesus return and the world come to an end, but when it does come, when my own end comes, will I be in a faithful state? So let's talk about death, my favorite subject. You know, I just I had did two funerals this week, and at the end of the second one, I said to Father, she said, Father, I really love doing funerals. Just go ahead and pencil me in to, to serve with you at all the funerals, and if you'd like me to preach, I love to preach at funerals as well. Um, we need to talk about death more often than we do. We don't want to talk about it, right? Because we don't like it. We're afraid of it, and we should not be. Now, to be sure, the day you die, the day I die, is not the greatest day for the people we leave behind. But it is the greatest day of our life. That's why we sing. That's why us Irish people sing and have a few beers when you die. It's the best day of your life. Let's celebrate. I know. I, my wife gets mad at me sometimes. So here's the thing. I think as humans we tend to fear death because we just are afraid of the unknown. We're not sure. We simply... I think one of our greatest fears is we're not sure if we will to go through whatever it is that causes our death. Will there be pain and suffering before we die? Will there be sickness and disease? Will there be some terrible accident? Will we be able to endure whatever it is that comes our way as our life comes to an end? Well, I would submit to us today that we really don't need to worry because whenever we receive whatever we are going to die from, the disease, the accident, the martyrdom, whatever it is, God will move in with help. It is called grace. We don't get this grace one minute ahead of time. We don't know how we will handle cancer because we've not received the grace yet to help us handle the cancer that leads to our death. Now, if you face serious illness in your life, and you know what I'm saying is true. God provided you help and strength that you never thought you had because you didn't. He sent it when it was needed. So what should we do to prepare for our death or for potential martyrdom? Should that be our call? Well, sometimes I wonder why there seems to be a barrier between us and God. We wonder why our prayers don't always seem to get answered. We wonder why we can't hear God's voice and discern His will for our lives. We doubt we have faith strong enough to endure martyrdom. Well, the reason may well be that we have placed an obstacle between ourselves and God's grace. We've made sinful choices. We failed to listen to God and be obedient to His teachings. 
and we've done nothing to put things right. In effect, we've blocked God's grace from flowing fully into our lives. In many cases, this has been a slow buildup over the years. I compare it to plaque in our arteries. It just builds up slowly. And we know if we don't do something about it, it will eventually take our physical life. Well, it's no different in our spiritual life. If we don't do something to remove the plaque, it will kill our soul. The first thing we must do is remove the buildup. Examine our lives from God's perspective. Look back over the history of our life. Resist the temptation to rationalize or justify our disordered thoughts and actions. You know, it doesn't matter how far back in the past the disordered choice was. It doesn't matter that at the time we didn't even recognize it as a disordered choice. We thought what we were doing was fine. What matters is that we face the truth, that we clear away the plaque that is built up. Repenting of these past sins opens our life fully to God's grace flowing freely once again into our lives. And that not only transforms us, it transforms the lives of those around us, most especially those that God has entrusted to our care. Does it ever concern anybody but me when we hear things like the Pope goes to confession once a week? Now, when I'm being my best self, I go to confession once a month. So Deacon Patrick goes to confession 12 times a year. And the Pope goes 52 times. Is it because he's so much more sinful than me? Or is it because he gets it? The Pope uses God's standard first and foremost to measure his life, not Deacon Patrick's a pretty low bar. You can jump over it without much problem. The Pope understands that the grace and the strength of faith that come from frequent using the sacrament of reconciliation is what we need in our lives. That regular injection of grace and strength so that should we face martyrdom, we are prepared. The point being that if I do not want to deceive myself into believing that I'll be okay when judgment comes, I've been a pretty good person, then I need to raise the standard of what I consider sin. In Mark's Gospel, the rich young man says to Jesus, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing Jesus tells him is, observe the Ten Commandments. To which the rich young man says, Teacher, all of these I have observed since my youth. The Gospel tells us Jesus looked at him with love and I think said, Really? You've kept all the commandments since your youth? Well, there's only one thing left for you to do. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. What we might miss is that Jesus is not telling the rich young man that he must do more than keep the commandments. He's telling him how to keep the commandments. The commandments do not call us to simply not steal but to give generously to those in need. The commandments do not call us to simply not kill, but to love our neighbor as ourselves, even our enemies. Jesus did not come to do away with the commandments, but to help us understand them in a whole new way, so that like the rich young man, we might not deceive ourselves into thinking we'll be okay when judgment comes. Let me put it this way. 
If I asked you, do you believe in God? I'm sure that everyone in this room would say, of course, I believe in God. And if I ask, is there a heaven and a hell? I think most of us would say, well, sure. I suppose there is a heaven and a hell. But if I ask, do you think God actually sends people to hell? Then we might begin to have some doubts. We might say, well, God loves and desires that all of us be with Him in eternal life. We might think, well, if people do go to hell, it must be the worst of the worst. If I went on to ask, are you a good person? I suspect we would all say, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. I'm not perfect, but I do the best that I can. If I went on to ask, well, have you kept all the commandments? I might hear something like, well, I've kept most of them. I haven't killed anybody. To which I might remind you that in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, you've heard it said, whoever kills is liable to judgment. But I say, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say, whoever has looked at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I got Jimmy Carter in trouble at one point, confessing that he had lusted in his heart. Shouldn't have got him in trouble. Should have raised our estimation of the man. If you ask me, Patrick, have you ever told a lie? I would have to say yes. If you ask me, have you ever stolen even a small thing, which my children heard this talk a week ago and were scandalized to say it, I would have to say yes. If you ask me, have you ever been angry with your brother? I would definitely have to say yes, multiple times. And if you ask me, have you ever looked at a woman with lust? I would sadly have to say yes. So, I've only looked at four of the commandments, and by my own admission, I'm a lying, thieving, murderous adulterer. So if when I stand before the Lord to be judged... And it's going to be based on these Ten Commandments. Am I going to be found innocent or guilty? And if I am found guilty, will I be sentenced to heaven or to hell? Well, the good news is that God created a way for justice to be served and for me not to suffer fully the consequences of my sinful choices. Jesus died on the cross, so that we might receive salvation, eternal life through the forgiveness of our sins. But that will not be forced upon us. We must seek that forgiveness. He'll gladly, delightedly, desperately wants to grant us that forgiveness. But we must ask. The story of the prodigal son, getting off topic a little bit, to me that's the greatest lesson in the story. Remember, the son rehearses his whole speech. Father, I have sinned against you and God. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Just let me be one of your servants. He goes back home with his speech rehearsed. His father sees him and comes running to him. He's so delighted to see his son return. He runs right up to him and stops. So that his son can say, Father, I have sinned against you and against God. Boom! That's all I needed to hear. Put some shoes on him. Get, let's kill the fatted calf. He's back. We must seek the forgiveness, with our lips. The other thing that we can do to prepare ourselves for the death and possible martyrdom is to offer ourselves to God and endure all the suffering that He may be pleased to send our way. 
as an act of reparation for our sins, but more importantly, as a sacrifice for the salvation of those we love, those God has entrusted to our care. Our sacrifice can be salvific for them. Just as Jesus' sacrifice was salvific for all, we can participate. In Scripture, the prophet Isaiah tells us of the suffering servant who shall justify many by his sacrifice. Jewish tradition would identify the suffering servant as the Israelites themselves, the people of the Old Covenant. Jesus would then come and identify himself as the suffering servant, the Messiah who came to give his life for ransom, the church, the people of the new covenant, you and me, must realize that we too are called to be the suffering servant. Now, I think most of us are willing to accept this role as God's servant. After all, he's the creator, we're the created. If somebody's going to be a servant here, it's pretty clear who it should be. But what's this business about being a suffering servant? Couldn't we be a joyful servant? A peaceful servant? A treasured servant? Why is God so pleased to make his servant suffer? But more importantly, why are his servants so willing to suffer? Why? Well, it's because suffering is not a punishment. It is not some kind of cruel joke. It is a challenge. It is a call to greatness. It is an opportunity to realize our destiny. It is a way to pre be prepared for whatever may come our way, including martyrdom. Each little bit of suffering for the Lord prepares us for the ultimate sacrifice that we may be called to make. God calls us to be brave, to be courageous in the face of pain and suffering. He calls us to turn to Him and to those around us for strength and encouragement, but most of all, He calls us to unite our pain and suffering with the pain and suffering of His Son, and thus participate in God's plan for the salvation of the world. We get to be part of saving the world. It's a tremendous privilege. It is an awesome responsibility to serve God in this way. To embrace and thus give purpose and meaning to our suffering is truly a noble calling. It is not easy, but it is our destiny. Let me give you an example of how this works. What we believe is that we are all part of the mystical body of Christ, which means what I do, be it good or evil, affects the entire body. So let's think for a moment regarding hardship, pain, and suffering. Let's say something like cancer is about to enter the mystical body. As a part of that body, I have two choices. I can say... I don't want any part of that cancer. Give it to somebody else. Or I can say, I don't want any part of that cancer. But so that someone else doesn't have to take it, give it to me. Which isn't to say that when something like specific type of suffering like cancer, God is going to send us all a text and say, so who wants to take the cancer today? As a parent, I'm thinking, wouldn't that be great? because no child would ever get cancer again. The point is, when hardship and of any kind must enter the mystical body of Christ, that's the attitude God is looking for in you and me. Thank you, Father, for sending it to me so that no one else must have it. That disposition of our heart is one of the ways that our pain and suffering are given purpose and meaning in this life. The reality that we are accepting it so that no one else has to. It's the very definition of Christian love. 
Not that we seek out or desire hardship, pain, and suffering. Remember, Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. What we must resolve is that hardship, sacrifice, pain, and suffering, when they come, we will accept it willingly so that no one else has to. That's what Christ means when he challenges us to give meaning to our pain and hardship. The idea that I can accept and endure cancer and that because I did it willingly, my wife or my son may not have to, that gives me great comfort in the suffering of my cancer. Let's talk about heaven for a moment because here's the rub. What gives us the strength to endure is the reality of eternal life. If we have that reality strong in our hearts, then we can endure anything that comes our way. Heaven is a wonderful place. As we heard earlier, it is our home. This is a bridge. You don't build your house on a bridge, do you? No. The bridge takes you to your home. We're not at home. No matter how beautiful that building we live in is, it's not home. It's not what we were destined for. Everything in heaven that we were made for reaches its fulfillment. In heaven we receive the gift of glory, which enables us to see God face to face and comprehend all the mysteries of this universe. Heaven is not earthly life perfected. It's not like the absence of aggravation and frustration. No more stupid people telling us what to do or cutting us off in traffic. It's not about sensual pleasures and delights, 72 virgins or an endless banquet of our favorite foods. It is not about wealth and possessions, streets of gold and mansions. These are our puny little visions of what paradise would be like. And in actuality, they point more to our disordered attachments to the things of this world than to the peace, the joy, the contentment that await us in heaven. Although the the essence of heaven is the beatific vision, the immediate contemplation of God in all His glory, There are other joys. We will be reunited with all those we love and all those who've gone before us and all the angels, and we will love them deeper than anything we ever experienced in this life because in this life we know we loved them imperfectly. In heaven we'll be able to move at the speed of thought. And even though we will have physical bodies, you know, My favorite movie, It's a Wonderful Life, has one mistake. Every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wing. That's a lie. Angels are angels. Humans are humans. Angels are spirit. Humans are physical and spiritual. And that will remain the same for all of eternity. But we will be able to have those physical bodies in heaven and still pass through solid objects. How do we know this? Well, from the apostles' experience of the glorified body of Jesus. He was with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and in an instant, he was with Peter. They were behind a locked door, which he came through, and yet Thomas could still stick his hand in the physical injuries of Jesus. We will be part of a new heavens and a new earth. All creation will experience the same glorified state that we will experience. If we marvel at the beauty of a snow-capped mountain or a magnificent sunset here on earth, how much more beautiful will it be in a grace-filled world? When we speak of heaven as being a land of eternal rest, we are not talking about inactivity, lounging about on the clouds. Work gives this life dignity, it does the same in heaven. 
in the new heavens and the new earth. We will have work. The difference between our work now and our work for all of eternity is it no longer comes with hardship, trials, frustrations, exhaustion. That's no longer part of our work. In addition, the delights of heaven never end, and that increases our joy. Here we know that joy never lasts. It's all passing. It's all temporary. Not the case in heaven. Everything is eternal. Everything is lasting. Everything is unending. If we must suffer for 120 years, or if we must give our life as a sacrifice to stand and witness to the truth of the gospel, that is nothing compared to eternity with God in heaven. Likewise, should we have to suffer for a time in purgatory, we will welcome the opportunity because we know the next stop is heaven. So let's talk about purgatory for just a minute. Do I still have a minute? You do. All right. <laughs> the church's belief in purgatory is one that is not shared by most Christians. They say it has no basis in Scripture, and it is true, you will not find the word purgatory in the sacred Gospels. The existence of purgatory presumes that God can and does forgive the guilt of mortal sin, but still permit the consequence of sin or punishment due because of the sin. In other words, God has forgiven our sin. That's why we're not in hell. But he did not remove the reparation due for that sin. And we are in purgatory to make that reparation. Where can we find that in Scripture? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. God forgave the guilt of David, his mortal sin, but he has still required David to suffer the consequence of his mortal sin. Second thing that the existence of purgatory presumes is that there is a distinction between mortal and venial sin. Where can we find this? 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. There is sin which is mortal. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal, which is not deadly. So apparently we can die with sin that is not mortal, what happens if we die in a state of venial sin? The souls of those who die in a perfect state of grace, without the least unforgiven sin or punishment due for forgiven sin, go directly to heaven. The souls of those who die in a state of unrepented mortal sin, deathly sin, go directly to hell. But those who die in a state of grace, but with venial sin or unpaid punishment, due to mortal sin, clearly do not merit hell, yet they are not pure enough to enter heaven where there is no stain of sin. Where do they go? Well, we call that place purgatory. Purgatory is a temporary state of purification for the imperfect saints. The souls of the just who have died in a state of grace, but with venial sins or reparation due for mortal sin, are cleansed in purgatory so that they may enter heaven. Although the souls in purgatory suffer much, they have peace and joy. They have gained their salvation. The chief suffering is they yearn to be with God, but cannot as yet enter into His presence. But when we die in a state of grace, but in need of further purification, we immediately realize we cannot enter heaven in this state. We do not want to enter heaven in this state. We willingly, dare I say, eagerly go to purgatory so that we may be cleansed, so that when we stand before the Lord, we stand pure. We are grateful 
for God's mercy and accept his willingness to endure this necessary purification. So finally, let's take a quick look at hell. But we'll make quick work of it because I say the hell with hell. The big party is not... No matter what Billy Joel sang when I was in high school, about he'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. Hell is a place of ultimate selfishness, loneliness, isolation, emptiness, despair. We do not want to go there. We want to be where complete joy and perfection reside. Heaven is permanent and perfect union with God. Hell is permanent and horrific separation from God. Before the general resurrection, only the soul suffers in hell. After the resurrection, the body will be reunited with the soul and will share in its misery. The greatest suffering in hell is the loss and the full knowledge of that loss, of the ability to know and love God for all of eternity. We might ask how could a merciful God send people to hell? It is because God respects our free will. If we do not ask for forgiveness, He will not force it upon us. He desires it for us, but He will not force it upon us. We must freely choose to love God. At death, the setting of our will becomes permanent. Those who have permanently turned against God get what they want, permanent separation from God. God allows us to suffer the results of rejecting Him, but He certainly does not will it or cause it. You and I may not live to experience Christ's return at the end of the world, but in our death, we will experience our own end. And since we do not know when that end will come, we must always be ready for it. Life may be completely normal, and then a fatal accident or a heart attack occurs. We must never let the ordinariness of life lead us into believing that the end cannot happen before we finish our next meal. The last things, death, judgment, heaven, hell, purgatory, are not trivial things like sports and television which are trivial things. Politics, which is clearly a trivial thing. These are not things of eternity. Everything on this earth is passing away. In the words of my favorite rock group, Kansas, it is all just dust in the wind. The only thing that is lasting is the kingdom of God. We cannot live our life in idle distraction without putting our eternal destiny at risk. Souls are perishing every day, many in our own families. And should persecution and martyrdom be the future for God's people once again in the West, many are unprepared and will thus likely fail the test and perish as well. God is calling us in this time of moral and spiritual decay to stand firmly on the rock of faith and fearlessly proclaim the truth. Because it is the truth that changes hearts and minds. It is the truth, even in the face of martyrdom, that saves souls. It is the truth, as Jesus promised us, that would set us free. Pray for those who you know that are atheists, agnostics, or have fallen away from the faith. Don't be reluctant to speak the truth into their life whenever the opportunity presents itself. You never know when your witness might ignite the ember that is burning deep in their soul and alter the course of their life for all of eternity. I know as parents, four out of five of you in here have a child who has fallen away from the faith. It is hard to discuss that with them, to challenge them about that. You're not sure what to say. All I can say is you must continue to witness. My oldest son, 39, has fallen away from the faith. 
I take him out to lunch once a month. At one of those lunches, he said to me, Dad, why do we always have to have this conversation? I said, because I love you, Jay. If we stop having this conversation, it means I don't care about you anymore. Is that what you want? No. Then we'll continue to have this conversation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you created us to know and be known by you, to love and be loved by you, to serve and to be served by you. We stand before you today, sinful and sorrowful, but overjoyed in your mercy and forgiveness. We stand before you with our fears and our doubts, but confident in your faithfulness and dependability. Thank you for the faith you give us so confidently. Thank you for the hope you give us so generously. Thank you for the love you give us so unconditionally. Help us to enter into a more intimate relationship with you, that we may begin to hear your voice more clearly. Help us to embrace our pain and suffering in this life as the conduit of your grace that they are meant to be. Grant us the wisdom and understanding to see clearly the path that you've placed before us, the courage and the faith to walk that path with confidence and conviction, and the mercy and forgiveness we so frequently need as we stumble along the way. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for being here today and hearing God's call.